very good to see you here on this day we gather to worship Jesus and uh, got the privilege of celebrating communion together. Uh, it's also some of my favorite weather is rain, so I hope you're enjoying that too. No, not everyone does, but um, I don't know about you, but when I got my first driver's license, I went to the DMV here in Iowa, uh, I did not have to take the driving test. Did not have to go out with the instructor and, and do the driving. Um, and I've talked to other people, uh, my wife and others, who they have had to take the test. But I realized I, I didn't have to. And I've wondered why. Um, because, is my mic on? Oh, okay. Uh, I've wondered why. Uh, but every time you go back in, you notice you still have to take a test. I still have to take a test. What kind of test do you have to take every time you go in the DMV? Vision test, that's right. Uh, why? Well, uh, what they're doing when they, when they give you your license is they're saying, we affirm that we believe in your perception of the world around you and yourself enough that we trust you with a 4,000 pound piece of steel that you're gonna go 30 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour in. It's a pretty big responsibility. Uh, so they wanna be sure that you can accurately perceive yourself, others around you, the world around you. And if that's true in the driving realm, how much more true is it in the spiritual realm? Today, Jesus wants to give us a vision test to show us where we are seeing him, his world, ourselves, and others clearly, and where our vision is still dark and dim. And since he's a good physician, he doesn't want to just give us a diagnosis and leave us there. He also wants to give us a prescription uh, for how to correct our vision of him, especially since he is the light of the world. And that's, that's the I am statement that we'll be studying this week. So if you want to flip in your Bible, click on your phone, tablet, whatever you sort of do there. Uh, flip over to John 8, or scroll over to John 8. And just one verse is going to be our primary text, verse 12, John 8, 12. And it reads like this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is God's word. It's good for us to obey it and to see what is true. And Parkview, what I want you to see today is that Jesus is the light to those of us, and that is all of us, who are walking in some sense in darkness. And so, uh, since Jesus is the light to those walking in darkness, follow him today. Follow him today. In John 8, 12, Jesus gives us, uh, he says he's the light of the world. And in doing so, he shows us three startling truths about, first, about ourselves and the world we live in. Second, uh, about himself and who he is, and lastly, what we should do about it. Uh, and so, before we get into it, let us pray uh, that the Lord would give us the light to, to see. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you most of all for the gift of your Son, who is the true light of light and the true light of life. Um, I pray that we would see him and that we would therefore see you truly today. Pray that you would give us light uh, to see your scriptures as they really are, uh, that you would help me to, to speak them as they really are, and that you would give us uh, the gift of faith that we would believe everything that you have said. Do what you have, have told us to do and not do what you have told us not to do, and therefore honor you fully. We pray all this for your glory in your son's name. Amen. And so the first thing that we learn, the first startling truth that Jesus teaches us uh, about us and about the world we live in is that very simply, the world is dark. The world is dark. 
When Jesus offers light and says, I offer to those who are walking in darkness to no longer walk in darkness, he is implicitly saying that apart from me, there's only darkness. It's an exclusive claim to have the light to offer to those who are in darkness. Our world is dark. But you might ask, Thomas, what do you mean dark? What, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by, by dark? And more importantly, of course, what did Jesus mean when he said uh, darkness? What did his original hearers uh, think when he, they said this, when he said this? Well, uh, the idea of light being a good, positive uh, in general, and dark being sort of bad, it didn't really begin here. In fact, throughout the whole Bible, uh, this idea is recognized and developed. It's a very illuminating metaphor. Uh, we don't tend to recognize the significance of light, and yet light is the source of all light. Scientists tell us that if the sun were to be extinguished today, we might live as many as two months. It's not very encouraging. And it's because light is the source of life. In the more, in, and in this natural sense, we are enormously dependent on light. Uh, and in Jesus' time, this was really much more obvious than it is today in our, well, we've got indoor lights. And, well, Don, why don't you show them what it would be like if we were in Jesus' time right now? Darkness was not an a, a interesting idea for, for the people living in Jesus' time. It was a lived reality. It was only a little over a century ago when uh, indoor electrical lighting became common. Light controlled your working hours since it made no sense and it was not really tenable to work after the sun went down. It controlled your social life, when you could see people, what you could do. It controlled agriculture since the sun, if the sun didn't shine, then you weren't going to eat and you were all going to starve. It controlled architecture. I mean, look, we never would have built this building if we didn't have electrical lights. Do you see what just happened? <laughs> Go ahead and bring them up. Darkness, then, was not just an interesting idea. Darkness was also a time of great danger. Uh, you didn't know. Because you couldn't see, you didn't know if there's, someone's going to rob you in the middle of the night because you can't shine your flashlight on them because you don't have one. Uh, it, it's dangerous because if someone were to come and, and hurt you, to assault you, you had no, no way of identifying them. It, darkness was a time when it, it was just a very dangerous, dangerous time because in the darkness, we are all, functionally speaking, blind. As one commentator put it, as in the natural realm, so also in the spiritual realm, light is an indispensable prerequisite for life. Without spiritual illumination that comes by knowing God, we are as lost navigating this world, our own lives, and, and who, knowing who God is as if we had had both of our eyes taken out. So to paraphrase, Jesus' sort of implied statement when he says, whoever follows me uh, will no longer walk, sorry, will not walk in darkness, we could easily just say, well, this person will no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is saying our world is dark. Knowing God means that the true light has come. Uh, he, he, by saying, I am the light, he's saying, I provide true knowledge of yourself, of others. I can give you true perception of the world as it actually is. And so this darkness uh, is not like a natural darkness where it's just sort of coincident. It's not moral, you know, to be in the dark like we just were a couple minutes ago. But the darkness that Jesus is talking about, though that teaches us something about, is, is actually the darkness of sin. It's, it's the dimness of our spiritual perception of God and his world and ourselves and, and those around us because uh, we, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, live in a world that we have 
chose, where we have chosen darkness, all, all of us in some sense. And so therefore, we don't see the world as, as we should, as it is. It's a very sad story. The world is dark. Now, this would be a, wouldn't this be just a nice sort of open and closed, oh, great first point, Pastor. Great, let me write that down. I'll tell all my sinful friends about their darkness, and they'll, it'll be great, and maybe I can sort of look down my nose at this. Because obviously, Jesus, of course, Jesus is saying this to pagans, right? To people who don't like God, who rejected God, right? Well, we're not so lucky, because when Jesus said this, first, we need to see, First, right after Jesus says this, this statement that he makes, I am the light of the world, it provokes this argument with the Pharisees uh, later on in John 8 where, where they have misunderstood his statement. But these, these people who are the religious leaders of the day, these are the ones he's interacting with. These are religious people who know a lot about God but don't have the light to see who God really is. He's right in front of them and they don't see it. Uh, second of all, Jesus speaks his declaration in the temple where, where God, right, where all the faithful people have come together for a festival, for the Feast of Booze. And so, who is Jesus saying this to? Who is Jesus addressing this to? Jesus is, is not out on the Ped Mall at 2 a.m. when the bars are closing and everyone's walking by and saying, I'm the light, okay, so light in the dark. You're all in darkness, you sinners. No, Jesus a better picture would be Jesus out in the Parkview lobby as you and me walk by saying, you're missing the light. I'm, I am the light. This passage is, of course, it's a call to those who have not seen the true light of Jesus, received the true enlightenment of Jesus to check their vision, but it's also, and primarily, firstly, a call to us. Uh, Jesus is talking to good church-attending people like you and me, right? It's a call to me, as a pastor, as a preacher, as I've prepared this, where are we dealing with blind spots in our vision of Jesus? We need to make sure our eyes are able to see his light. Are there blinders that we need to take off? Uh, not too long ago, uh, my wife and I got a camcorder. You guys have seen those still around. I know all our, all our phones probably have video cameras on them now. Uh, but mostly because we wanted to film little baby Jack doing all the cute stuff he does. You know, just nine months old. He's just, ah, he's just a joy. Uh, but what, what has happened a couple of times is that we whip out the camera because, you know, he's doing a really cute thing and you want to get it right in the moment. And you hit record. And what happened? Yeah. It's still black. The, the screen is black. Now, what happened there? Was I recording darkness? Uh, not on purpose. What happened was I had left the lens cap on, right? You ever done that? It's a real bummer. <laughs> uh, because what you wanted to see, well, it's, uh, no, you're just recording dark. Now, did that happen because what I was filming, what I was recording was dark? No, it, it was because there was something within uh, the, the camcorder uh, that was keeping it from perceiving the light, from seeing uh, the light. And so I think we also must ask ourselves, is there anything within me that prevents me from perceiving the true light, the bright light, brighter than 10,000 suns, light, that is in Jesus, that is Jesus. And so I want to introduce you to sort of what I want to apply this through, the, the way I want to apply this is through three deadly C's. I want to call them the three C, the letter C. Uh, these are deadly disorders, I want to say, that keep us in the dark, keep us from seeing the light. Like the lens cap, they keep us, not because Jesus is not light, but because we uh, have something blocking our vision of him. And these three C's, I'll just tell you them right now, but I'm going to go through them point by point. But concealment, 
First, that's what we're going to talk about now. Complacency and carelessness. Concealment, complacency, and carelessness. So, concealment keeps us in the dark. Here's, here's what I mean. Do you have a secret sin? Something you don't want anyone to know about. Hoping no one finds out. Hoping no one opens the door. Hoping no one sees it. Something you are hoping you can manage. Hoping you can keep in a tiny box in a dark little corner where you never like to go except when you go. Is there something that you don't want in, in your business life, in your professional life? Is there a relationship that's gone, it's not become physical, but it's become emotional? Is there something on computers? Is there a fantasy that you've indulged? Is there bitterness, a root of bitterness that instead of uprooting, you're carefully in the dark nurturing? See, when we harbor secret sin, we think that we're keeping our secret sin in the dark. But in reality, it's our secret sin that's keeping us in the dark. When we harbor a secret sin, we think that we're keeping God from knowing about it. But in reality, it's our secret sin that's keeping us from knowing God. The message here, however, is, is not, I'm not, my call to you is not, okay, so everyone huh, muster up and turn to your neighbor. <laughs> And let's just do it, you know. Uh, that, might, that might be a good step, maybe. Uh, but my, my real call is first, the, the thing that's going to empower you to do this is to believe the gospel again. The gospel not only calls us to this kind of radical transparency and living in the light, but it also not only calls us, but also empowers us to do it. Because what is the gospel? The gospel tells us that it's not because of our clean living that we have, can come to God and be part of him and be Christians. Uh, it's actually because of Jesus' clean living. It's because of his light that we're able to come to him. And so putting something in the light uh, could never be a loss because we've already gained everything in Jesus and everything that we have is sealed up in him forever. And so uh, disclosing rather than concealing our sin to a brother, to God even now, is not a loss. It's actually a win. It's to come back into his love. It's to take the lens cap off of the camera so that we can see clearly who God is how holy he is, and yet how much he loves us. Do you have a friend who knows your secret sin? Maybe someone in your community group, someone close to you, a good close friend. Do you have a friend who knows where you will be tempted this week? Who's committed to praying for you in this area? Who reminds you of the truths I just said, the, the truths of Jesus that will, will keep you coming into his light, being dwelling in his light. Coming out of the darkness is hard. That's why we, we need nothing less than the power that the gospel can give us to do it. And yet the most beautiful thing of all is that this light that we're talking about, it's not abstract sort of photons, beams, and rays, and, and that sort of thing. The light that Jesus is talking about is not a concept, it's a person. And that's the second thing that we learn. Uh, first, we learn something about who we are, that and, and the world that we live in, that is, that the world is dark. And secondly, we learn something about who Jesus is. That is, Jesus is the light. The world is dark. Jesus is the light. Now, it's pretty clear that this is essentially the central proposition, the central claim that Jesus is making here. I mean, it's the title of, I mean, I am the light. I am the, the light of the world. Uh, by calling him, himself the light, Jesus refers not just sort of to the idea of light in general as a proposition, as, but to the specific theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. That is the light of the revelation 
of God. The light of the, Jesus says, I am the light of the revelation of God. And so in order to understand Jesus' claim more specifically, we actually have to go into sort of the historical context of what was happening, what he was saying. That sounds boring. Let me put it this way. If I stand up here, well, probably depending on how old you are, and I say, I am not a crook. Okay? You, everyone, well, most of you probably know what I'm referring to. I'm referring to Richard Nixon and the Watergate and probably a hundred different things come to mind instantly. I didn't have to explain them to you. I didn't have to argue them to you, any of that. You just know because of, because of context. When Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world, he was doing what I, exactly what I just did. And everyone, most of the people probably in the room would get, oh, yeah, okay. So we need to understand those things because we're not living 2,000 years ago with all of those things just bouncing around our head all the time. As I mentioned before, Jesus makes this statement in the temple during uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so uh, during this time, um, certain men, sort of honored elder men would come in and as it got dark in the temple courts, they would come in with torches, lights, right? They would come in, go up, light, the torches in the temple, and boom, we've got light. Now we can see, now we can worship. And so the first thing Jesus is doing is it's an object lesson. Okay, see the light? Oh, it comes, and now you can see? That's like me. And yet he's saying so much more. I, I'm going to focus on two things, though. The first thing is this. By calling himself the light of the world, Jesus is invoking a particular prophecy uh, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, that this, this prophet of God named Isaiah, you can read about it in the Old Testament, uh, 800 years before Jesus, uh, at, at several points during the ministry of Isaiah, his prophetic ministry, his, his ministry of partly of telling what was to come, he painted the picture of this sort of mysterious individual, uh, often called the suffering servant, uh, who would arise among God's people, Israel. And, and this image, is, it's very striking, and it's also kind of confusing. Um, and there's always this question, who, who could this person be? And what would it mean for them to come? Uh, Isaiah described this, this person that, that though they, the servant would be a just judge, a good just judge, that this servant would bring justice, not by causing violence when he came, but by bearing violence. It's confusing. It's intriguing. The, the servant, though, though the servant would be a powerful and mighty king, he would rule not by conquest and subjugation, uh, but by serving others. That though the servant would suffer, the servant would suffer not for his own sins, not for his own transgressions, not for his own wickedness, but somehow uh, his unjust suffering would restore those who deserve that suffering, those who deserve that punishment. And one of the most striking things, perhaps even as it comes to a head, uh, that's said about the servant is the description given in, in, in the one that Jesus is directly quoting here in John 8, 12. And it's from Isaiah 49, 6, and it says this. Is it too light a thing, is it too easy a thing, too simple, too small of a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? That it, is it too small a thing that you would, I don't know, rally God's people? Is that too small of a thing? Well, here's what he will do additionally, this servant. I'll make you as a light for the nations, a light to the world that my salvation might reach, that God's salvation would reach to the very ends of the earth, all over the earth. Isaiah foresees a day 
when this mysterious special individual who's, who he is foreseen will give such illumination to God's people that they will actually become a beacon of light, not only within their own nation, but to the entire world, to every single nation on earth. That, they would all, that instead of people having to stream into the nation of Israel, the particular people, nation of Israel, to become part of God's people and experience salvation, uh, sort of a come and see version, rather the ends of the earth, rather than the ends of the earth coming to Israel, the ends of the earth, we would go to the ends of the earth, that Israel would go to the earth. How does this? And so when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, follow me to get out of this darkness and experience salvation, he's saying, you know that mysterious figure? Suffering servant, that king who would rule in such a strange way, all these things. It's me. It's me. He, he's saying uh, this dramatic change in the way that this would work. Uh, I, I, I am him. I am the focal point, Jesus is saying, of God's plan to rescue and redeem not just Israel, but the entire world. To set the creation back to how it was, it was always supposed to look. He says, I am the suffering servant, the one who has come to solve your sin problem once and for all, to make a way of salvation, not only uh, for the Jewish people, but for non-Jews alike, most of us in this room. Uh, Jesus is saying, I am the central pivot point. I am the apex. I am, I am the pinnacle, the climax of God's plan to save the world from its self-imposed darkness and death. That's all. But wait, if that wasn't enough, that was point one. Point two is this I am statement. It comes third in a series of three things that Jesus says about himself in these few chapters of John. First thing is what Wade talked about last week. I am the bread of life. He says, remember when Israel was wandering after they got out of Egypt, out of slavery, God gave bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Second thing is what hap actually happens directly before this in, in chronological time. Uh, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, come, I will give him water. I will give him living water. They will never thirst again. And now Jesus says, I am the light that you must follow. I am the light of the world. What's happening? Well, when, when Israel escaped uh, by God's power from the Egyptian people, from where they were enslaved, uh, these were three things that God gave to them. What did he give them? Give them bread from heaven to sustain them. Give them water from a rock. And miraculously, by day he led them by a pillar of cloud. And by night, he led them in the darkness by a pillar of light. And Jesus says, I am the bread, I am the water, and I am the pillar. I am the light. I am the true bread. He says, you know that bread that you had in the wilderness and you, you're recounting that story yourselves? Guess what? It was all pointing to me. It was whispering my, that bread was whispering my name. Remember that water? Huh, that, that water, remember how, how Moses, he struck the rock and brought out water for you? Huh, well, guess what? I'm the rock who has to be struck in the wilderness of sin so that I can give you true quenching of your spiritual thirst. And now, to come to a conclusion, if this, if this, if, as if what I said wasn't enough before about him being the climax of God's plan, he says, not only looking forward, am I the secret to salvation, looking backward. We can narrate your whole, re-narrate your entire history as a nation, as a people, and all of your plot lines come together and converge in me. I am the light of the world. Dear friends, you must see and believe, whether you are here committed ferociously to Jesus or not, 
that no matter what the personal plot lines of your life are, they will not find a happy ending unless they converge in the person of Jesus. No matter what story your, your past has told you, your family, good or bad, your desires, good or bad, your nationality, your politics, your, your past, your profession is telling you will not have a happy ending unless they converge and center on the person and work of this Jesus. In 1514, uh, a Prussian astronomer, uh, his name was Nicholas, he made a startling discovery. By, by observing the stars, here's what he found out. The sun is enormous and the heaviest thing in the solar system by far. And guess what? The earth does not, well, sorry, the sun does not orbit around the earth, but the earth orbits around the sun. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. You may have heard of him. Copernican Revolution. It was a really big deal. And in fact, because before that, everyone thought that the earth was the center of the universe. Naturally, we're all narcissists and we think, of course, it makes sense. Everything orbits around us. Uh, but this ch it really changed everything. In fact, a lot of things fell into place because of this massive shift uh, in, in the way that we viewed and perceived the world around us correctly. And so let, let me ask, is Jesus the sun around which every other planet in your life orbits? Is it, is it the heaviest, densest, is, is he the heaviest, densest, most, most imposing part of your life that causes all other things to bow and center themselves around him? Or is he there? He's there, but maybe he's, he's one of the planets circling around some other good. When you think about your past, good or bad, does it point you to Jesus? When you think about how you spend your leisure time, uh, does it show that he is the sun of your life? When you think about your social life, your family rhythms, your anxieties, your rejoicing, your sadness, do, do they point you to the center? Do they point you? Is, is Jesus the focal point of the story of your life? And I must ask because the second deadly C is complacency complacency. And the image that we get in this passage is the image of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, the man who knows lots of knowledge about Jesus, lots of things about Jesus. In fact, right after Jesus says this, they get in a big conversation, big argument, and they're really flexing their muscles because they know a lot about the Bible. They know a lot about the law. They know a lot about the Old Testament. And yet for all their knowledge about Jesus, they don't see the light that's standing right in front of them. And so let me ask you, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And just like we asked in that video, have you heard him? Have you seen him? Have you found that what began as a spell of spiritual dryness has extended into a spiritual drought? There's, there's nothing wrong with the undulations of, of spiritual fervor. Those, those are going to happen. What we can't do is give up. Have you given up stoking the fire? Of, of your affection for Jesus by, by doing the, the spiritual rhythms that you reading that Bible, getting in, the, in prayer and, and, and sharing the gospel and doing all these things. Have you given up on, on those to stoke them because they felt a little bit cold? Have you settled for theological knowledge in place of personal connection and light? You know, one of the best ways to get out of complacency, to get out of this, is, and, and to stoke your spiritual furnace of, of love and, and desire for Jesus, is actually to help light someone else's fire, uh, to share uh, the light, to share the warmth that you have. Nothing will push you 
to, to passionately read your Bible, to passionately pray for those around you, uh, like being asked real questions, having a real person that you're pursuing uh, that you want to show the light of Jesus to. Uh, you know, we don't have to choose between coming really spiritually deep or being really good at evangelism. In, in fact, if we choose one or the other, we're unlikely to have either. We need to have both. It's Easter is coming. This is, this is a great opportunity to invite someone to, to share and stoke your own furnace of affections for Jesus. When I meet with my community group leaders, they will testify to you. Uh, often, you know, they're asking me, you know, how do we do better in sharing the gospel and being a community, you know, bearing witness to Jesus? We want to do an event. We want to do something like, like this. My first question always to them is, do the members of your group already have, are they already cultivating relationships with unbelievers, with people who don't have the light. Uh, that's really step one. And so uh, let me just invite you. Uh, as the weather warms up, we have an incredible opportunity uh, to go out of our way to meet neighbors. Maybe it's been a while since you've connected. It's been really cold. It's been really kind of awful. Uh, but to take one step toward, toward this, toward making a more significant relationship. Go for a meal. Uh, that might be a big step. Maybe just go for a walk together. I think one thing we could all, one thing I've really tried to do uh, is just to be outside in our yard more. Uh, so we can run into people, you know, as they're walking by, praying that that would happen. You know, sharing the light of Jesus often looks a lot more mundane than it sounds. Sharing the light, right? Uh, often it doesn't look that, ra what it looks like uh, is a warm plate of chocolate chip cookies, right? It looks like an open ear, right? It looks like praying that as they walk by that you would think of, how do I get in a conversation? I haven't talked to you for five years. <laughs> and, and, and seeing God provide. So the first thing that we learned is that the world is dark. The second thing, that Jesus is the light. And now, it's very simple. Jesus, the world is dark, Jesus is the light, and now something about what we should do about it. Follow the light. Follow the light. The offer that's given by Jesus is that those who follow him will see the world rightly, will perceive the world rightly. They will see his light rather than living in, in the blindness of darkness and death, spiritually speaking. And so it's worth taking a few moments in these, in these last few minutes uh, to understand exactly what Jesus means when he uses uh, these words that we must follow. We must follow him. See, God does not ask us to accomplish our salvation, uh, but simply to trust him for salvation. And, and this fact is wrapped up in Jesus' chosen metaphor, following. Follow me. He says, follow me. Maybe we've become so, uh, you know, inured to this, so accustomed to this expression that it's lost its meaning, to follow. Uh, to follow Jesus and his light means that he has forged the way in the darkness ahead of us. We follow after Jesus. It means Jesus does not say, hey, get out there in the darkness, do a good job, walk really good, I'll be right behind you. Uh, I've got light, and when you need it, and you really, you start bumping into things, then don't worry. You might think I'm not there, but I'll just like kind of pop out, and then I'll have the light. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I'd love for you to come to the light, but oh man, if you could just clean yourself up a little bit, uh, some of those sins, some of those things you're sort of doing, I wish you would just, just stop those. Then when you think you'll look good enough when you come into the light, then come into the light, and then follow me. No, Jesus says, follow me because I am the light. If you want to see the world rightly, get as close to Jesus as you possibly can. The farther you are, the darker you will be. Do you find yourself stumbling 
over things that you, you never saw coming. Come, come as close to Jesus as you can. In fact, if you truly see and affirm the first two things I've said, that the world is dark and that Jesus is the light, following him as close as possible will become so natural to you. Uh, let me explain. Uh, imagine that you're a soldier at war and you find yourself stuck, uh, ab abandoned by your company, and you're behind enemy lines. To make matters worse, it's completely pitch black. And so you know there are enemies all around and you do not know how to get to safety. You've, you hear them, you know that you're in great danger because if they get you, they, they may torture you, they may kill you, but you're in, you in big trouble. You're in the dark and alone. But then, one of your battle buddies, they come up, they get you, and after your start, heart stops racing, uh, he goes, oh, hey, guess what? I know how to get out. And it, this isn't just, you know, some, you know, sort of random guy. This is, this is the leader who's come, he's gotten you, uh, and he said, hey, not only, I've got night vision goggles, I can see, I know exactly where to go, and so uh, let's, let's get out of here, man, this is dangerous, let's get out, let's get, to, let's get out of here. Okay. How closely are you going to follow him? Maybe sort of keep him at a distance, you know, you can sort of, oh, I know he's there, I'll just listen for his footsteps and then, probably not. Uh, Maybe just sort of, I'll keep him within earshot. No. What are you going to do? You're going to be so close to him that you can smell what he ate for dinner because your life is on the line. If, if we truly believe that the world is as dark as the Bible affirms and that Jesus is as bright as, as we say, then we will not be, be lagging behind. We will be as close to him as, as we possibly can. We will not be casual. We will, not be, we will be grabbing onto the back, holding onto it. We, we would say, could I just get a piggyback ride? That would be ideal, right? No, but my, the message here is not, just like before, is not that we all just sort of, let's just all clench it up and mm, we'll get it, give maximum effort. And then the fact is, we always give maximum effort. We always give all of our energy to the things that we really think are worth it. We, we will give our time. We've got plenty of time. We will give our time to the things we think are really worth our time. You find time to do the things you, you really think. We find we find money for the things that we think are really valuable, don't we? The question is not whether we're trying hard enough. It's whether we've really seen the light that Jesus is. A couple months ago, uh, or sorry, a couple weeks ago, uh, Katie and I were looking for a vacation. We're trying to plan a vacation. We've never really done this sort of with a baby, trying to get out, you know, do the thing. And so we're looking for recommendations. And what we learned uh, a little bit through that and previous experience is, has anyone here ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, quite a few. Okay. And what I've noticed is when people suggest the Grand Canyon, they are not at all casual and calm about it. When someone has been to the Grand Canyon, they are just so hyped up. They, they will tell you, you have to go. You must go. You, you've got to get there because you just go. And wow, it's just a, before you die, you've got to get there. You've got to go. Why are, why are they so passionate? Okay, I'll tell you. It's not because when you go to the Grand Canyon, a guy stands up and says, hey, welcome to the Grand Canyon. I'm glad you're here. Here are the rules for when you leave. You have to tell people about it. They don't go to meetings every week where someone stands up and says, you know, you really ought to be telling people about the Grand Canyon. It's really your, your duty as a Grand Canyon person. And... I don't know how the Grand Canyon is going to grow without you. So 
I really hope you do it. You should feel bad if you don't. That's not how it happened. How did it happen? They saw true beauty. They saw, they saw something compelling. They saw no one is passive about true beauty. No one is passive about true awe, true transcendence. When we see how dark the world is and we see how bright Jesus is, we will follow him passionately and wholeheartedly. The most wonderful thing about this passage is not just that Jesus sort of says a true thing about himself, which it is, that he's the light, but that he backs up his statement, even though it costs him everything. Jesus can call us to follow his light because he first went down into the darkness of death. Jesus is the one, uh, you might remember, who is with the Father in the beginning. Uh, John 1, in fact, tells us about this. He was there. Uh, in fact, him and Dad, God, right, uh, they, they thought up the Son. What's the first thing they made? Let there, be, let there be light, they said. And so they imagined the sun and the moon and the stars, and they put them in the sky. That was Jesus, the inventor of light. And then he watched uh, as, as, his fir- the, as his appointed rulers, Adam and Eve, they went astray. They betrayed him, and the world descended and slipped into darkness and death and a, and a self-imposed death sentence. And yet he, he didn't stand by. It, see, if the creator of the world was going to give his people true light, then he would have to enter true darkness. And so the author of light wrote himself into our darkness to bring us the light. And then, and then he came and he dwelt in our darkness for 33 years, experiencing the darkness that I just described today. Uh, but there was more. It, it wasn't enough for him to simply be, passively be the light in the darkness, no matter how brilliant his life was. If Jesus, if God, and if he was going to take the darkness out of his world once and for all, then first he would have to take the darkness into himself. And on the cross, all of the creation bore witness to what was happening. The sun went dark. The light went out because the creator of light descended into death and darkness. And yet, God did not leave him in the darkness of the grave. The darkness would not win. In fact, if you ever wonder whether God can bring light out of darkness, look at an empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, where one day uh, God will make the entire world and us, if we belong to him, look like that. He will resurrect. He will do the work of bringing light into the world. And, and one day, God will set his entire world to rights and we will be together and there will be no need for sun and moon and stars because Revelation 20 tells us, God himself, 21, tells us that God himself will be our light. We, we will not have to struggle to stay close to him, to grab onto him anymore because he will be among us. We will know him. We will know each other. And so when Jesus says, follow me, it is not cheap words. He calls us to follow because he has gone ahead. The, the path of our darkness, out of our darkness, is illuminated and first it was tread by our creator and king. And so all there is for us to do is get as close to him as we possibly can. And so uh, the last of sort of the deadly seeds that I mentioned is, is this, carelessness. And what I'm talking about is spiritual apathy. Uh, I mean, be honest with yourself. Do you find Jesus, do you kind of not get what I'm saying? Do you find him a little bit dull? 
Just be honest, right? Be honest with yourself. It's, it's better. Do you find it difficult just to motivate yourself, right? I know I do sometimes. To, to engage, you know, in spiritual discipline. You know, just like I mentioned before, Bible, prayer, all those sort of things. Do you find you don't really have a desire to serve the movement, to serve the church? And I, I want to invite you, not, I'm not saying that to shame you, uh, but rather to invite you to show, to see the real Jesus, the suffering servant, the creator king, the king of glory, whose light is true life, whose cross and resurrection is the center, the apex of human history. When we see him clearly, there is nothing more compelling. We, we will be like those Grand Canyon people who instantly become evangelists. Uh, just like they've become evangelists for uh, the Grand Canyon, we will find ourselves compelled to tell others. When, when Bible reading will become a joy and prayer will not be a, sort of a chore, but an indispensable gift from God, not just another task to tick off. Sure, of course, there's going to be times, just like I said, undulations. We have to take our hearts aside and remind them of what is true. Uh, but if you lack that passion, I just invite you to look and, and look, it's probably all of us right now, to look and see this Jesus. Uh, and and if, if this is really sort of the first time for you, I want to invite you especially to the Gospel of John, where, where Jesus is really on display, just like in the other Gospels as well, but especially John. I want you to think about John. If you were to read one chapter a day in three weeks, you would have gone through the Gospel of John. And I want you to do that. I want you to ask the Lord to open your eyes to see, to take the lens cap off, to observe the light that is in him and look and follow him, not at a distance, but nose to nose, uh, like the world is really dark around you. So Parkview Church, God has not just given us a light for the darkness, but he has entered into our darkness in order to make it light. So let's glory in this true king. Uh, let's reject concealment of our sin. Let's reject complacency uh, by knowing just about God without knowing him. And let's reject carelessness and, and look at this king and, and pour everything out for him. Let's let nothing obscure our vision of his indelible and glorious light. And let's pray that God would do this now. Lord, what, it is, what a gift it is to know you. What a treasure it is to have your light and to, to see clearly, to perceive the world rightly, to, to see ourselves, what's wrong with us, and what you've done to fix it rightly. We thank you for these gifts, and we pray, um, we pray that you would take the lens cap off, that you would uh, heal our blind spots, and that we would see you in all of your glory, and that it would compel beautiful obedience, beautiful uh, witness, um, compelling and, and wonderful uh, love for one another, serving this world in darkness because we're not afraid of the dark because we have the light. And we pray that you would do all this for, for the sake of the light, for your son, and for your glory. We pray. Amen.